Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We all talk to ourselves all the time. This kind of inner dialogue can be a good thing, helps us focus and helps us work through problems, but it can also go off the rails, turning into worry and negative rumination. My guest today calls this negative self-talk chatter, and in his book of the same name, he outlines how to get a handle on it. His name is Ethan Cross. He's a psychologist and the director of Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory, and we begin our conversation with the way introspection can be both good and bad, and the function of the voice in our heads. We discuss why negative emotions makes us want to reach out to other people and start talking and how this impulse can be harnessed in either a positive or detrimental way. We then unpack how managing the way we talk to ourselves really comes down to zooming out and getting distance from the self and how this can be accomplished with a variety of tools from engaging in a kind of time travel to going out in nature. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash chatter. Ethan joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Ethan Cross, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So you're a psychologist and you've spent your career researching and writing about something that people, you know, they do all the time, but they don't like to talk about it because they think they might be crazy. But you research how people talk to themselves in their head. How did you fall in that line of research when you were like a young psychology student? Why did you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into that? Great question. Actually, it started before I was a psych student. So it started way back when I was a little kid, when I was like three or four years old. My dad, who was always really into Eastern philosophy and things that didn't seem very cool or exciting when I was a kid, he used to always encourage me to introspect when bad things happen. So if I was having trouble with something, you know, he would tell me to go inside and try to figure out a solution to the problem so I could move on. And I, I by and large listened to his advice and it served me well throughout my childhood and adolescence. And then I got to college and I took a class on psychology and, and I learned that yes, introspection can be really, really good for lots of people. A lot of the time, bad things happen, focus inward, try to make sense of what you're feeling. And, you know, language is involved in doing that. Our, our inner voice, it helps us storify life. But what I also learned is that this process of going inside, it often backfires in spectacular ways. So people often do exactly what my dad used to tell me to do, but they don't end up feeling better. They end up worrying and ruminating and catastrophizing and engaging in what I call chatter, which is captures that the, the reverberating negative thoughts that often run through our head that lead us to feel like we're spinning. We're not getting anywhere where we're trying to solve a problem. And so the big puzzle for me was, well, why is introspection sometimes really helpful? and other times really harmful. What distinguishes between the healthy versus harmful way of talking to ourselves? And I spent my career trying to figure that out. And we'll we'll unpack those differences. But before we do, like, what do we know about that internal dialogue that we have with ourselves? Does like, does everyone do it? Like, how old are we when we start doing it, et cetera? Yeah. So when we're talking about the inner voice, in technical terms, we're talking about silent verbal processing. So using language silently in your head. And this is an amazing superpower that we all possess. And it's one that serves many different functions. So the inner voice isn't just one thing. It's not just the, you know, the ongoing stream of thoughts that's narrating your life. The inner voice also captures lots of other things. Like, you know, if I, if I were to ask you to repeat a phone number silently in your head. So repeat right now the numbers 2090501. Take a second to do that. Okay. Were you able to do it? Were you able to do it? Yes. Yeah. So 
that's tapping into your, your verbal working memory, which your inner voice is involved with, right? Like it's this ability to, to rehearse verbal information. And everyone who has a well-functioning mind can do that. It's part of the, the basic architecture of the human mind. Language helps us process information, but it could also help us do other things like simulate how we're going to behave in the future. So before I have a high stakes speech, I'll often in my head rehearse what I'm going to say. I'll then imagine what an unruly audience member is going to ask me to try, try to trip me up. I'll hear what they're going to ask me and then I'll hear myself respond. So our inner voice is helping us plan and simulate there. It can also help us control ourselves. Like when you're doing a really difficult problem, all right, put this piece here, then put this piece here and then do this. I'm of course projecting right now because I'm talking, that, that was an example of putting together like a, a kid's toy, which I'm terrible at. So, but, but that's another usage of your inner voice. So it does lots of different things in terms of when it develops. Some of the earliest research studies that, that speak to this suggest around 18 months. That's not to say it doesn't develop earlier, but that's as early as I've seen a, a documentation of it in a scientific article. And when you say that everyone does it, every like you even this includes deaf people who can't hear it. I thought this is really interesting. Like what they do is they kind of have like an internal sign language dialogue going on with themselves. Yeah. So there's evidence that people who are deaf, they basically talk to themselves, but using their sign language. So they, it's like inner, it's called inner signing instead of inner speech. So they're using the same modality that they use to communicate with people in the world. They're, they're engaging that modality silently in their head. So, you know, I do want to point out that different people may rely on their inner voice to do different things more or less than others. A couple of years ago, there was a, a big hoopla on the internet about some people saying they don't have an internal voice or running inner monologue. You know, I think it's possible that those individuals may not constantly narrate their life. They don't have that inner stream constantly flowing. But at the other end of the spectrum, can they use language silently to do things like rehearse a number? Yes, that's a basic feature of the human mind. And also this inner voice is fast. Like it's like you give this example, it's basically spitting out tons of state of the union addresses in a matter of minutes. Yeah. So we can talk to ourselves much faster than we can speak to other people out loud. And the reason for that is there are really two, two factors. First, when we, when we're talking out loud, that's a complicated process. We take it for granted, right? But we're actually there is a lot of motor movements involved. We're moving our mouth and our muscles. Our diaphragm is going up and down. And so, so it's a, it's a complicated behavior and we don't have to engage in the same steps when we're silently speaking to ourselves. The second thing is that although we can talk to ourselves in full sentences, like when I'm practicing what I'm going to say to someone else, I'll say it out loud. I'll say it silently in a full sentence, but we can also talk to ourselves in a more compressed form. So we're, we're not actually talking to ourselves in full sentences. It's more like taking shorthand notes. Inner speech can take that more compressed form. And that gives us a lot of verbal punch in a short period of time. So as you said, we do this for, we have this internal monologue for a variety of reasons. There's helps with our working memory, helps, allows us to remember and call back numbers, but also people, there's researchers who've looked and just asked people like, 
tell us what you're thinking, like stream of conscious. And it's usually the content of internal dialogue. So there's some of the, okay, I got to remember this thing. But then also it's just a lot of like, hey, I see this thing and this is what I think about this thing. I know this reminds me of this memory. Well, that's the other thing too, is that how a lot of times with, with our internal dialogue, there's a lot of like time travel going on, time jumping. Yeah, I, I think this is really fascinating. We hear nowadays a lot about the importance of living in the moment. And, and I'm all for being present, <laughs> present in the appropriate times. But I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we spend a lot of time not living in the moment, traveling into the future and past. And this is actually, this, that's not a problem. That's a really amazing capacity. It's an amazing capacity that distinguishes us from other animals, right? Like we can go back in time and, and reminisce about things that happen, experience nostalgia. We can, we can try to figure out why we said that stupid thing that got us in trouble. So we don't say that stupid thing again in the future. We can think about the future and, and, and try to plan like, or fantasize. Like I'm regularly fantasizing about what I'm going to do when this pandemic ends, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm on a beach having a pina colada. So this ability to travel in time is something that we are uniquely equipped to do. And we spend a lot of time doing it. And so when you ask people what they're thinking about, they're often not in the moment. They're, they're dipping back and forward in time. And this allows, I mean, it's basically how we're trying to make, it sounds like we're, when we do that, we're trying to make sense of our reality. We're, that's, it's all sense-making, essentially. Orienting yeah, ourselves. I think, that's, I, I think that's a big piece of it. We know that, you know, human beings, we like to, in an ideal world, we would just navigate the world on autopilot. And when I say ideal, I say ideal in the sense of how you could effortlessly live life, right? You're just traveling along. You're not expending any resources to like make sense of what's happening around you. Cause it's, it's, that's hard work. Like making sense of things is not easy. You wouldn't want to be doing it all the time. And so when do we tend to try to make sense of things? When we get stuck. And so, you know, the other interesting thing coming out of the studies that you referenced that ask people about what they're thinking, oftentimes, the majority of the time when, that people are having these verbal thoughts, they tend to be negative in, in their tone. So we tend to be talking to ourselves about, about, about problems. And I think one of the reasons why that's the case is because problems are all, often what we're trying to, to solve, what we're trying to make sense of. And, and that's why they, they occupy so much real estate, quote unquote, in our minds. So you mentioned there, there could be some people who don't use this internal uh, dialogue or voice as much as other people do, but there's, there's that, we've actually know of cases where people lose their ability to talk to themselves. And it was, this happened to a person who's actually, I think she was a neuroscientist, correct? Like she, yeah, she was an, an, a neuroanatomist. I, I, I tell this story in chatter and it's fascinating, right? So this woman has a stroke and she, she loses the stroke is localized in a part of the brain that is involved in language. And so she not only loses temporarily the ability to talk to other people, but also to talk to herself. And initially she thought that this would, this would be great. And initially she reported being elated. She no longer had the worries, the ruminations, that inner critic chirping her, chirping up, telling her she wasn't good enough and so forth and so on. And that felt really good. But as time went on, what she realized is she also couldn't rely on her, her inner speech to, to help her make sense of who she was, right? We often use our inner speech. These, we, we, we have conversations with ourselves 
to figure out things about who we are as we navigate this world. It helps us, it helps shape our identity. And, and, and she lost that capacity, which ended up being quite problematic for her. So I think an important take home from that lesson is the inner voice, although it can be the source of a lot of pain, like when we're ruminating or worrying, it is not in and of itself a bad thing. It, to the contrary, it's an amazing tool. Like it helps us do a lot of things. It's just that it can slip into the negative territory when, when we start ruminating or worrying. And so when it slips into the negative territory, I think the challenge is to figure out how you can, how you can rein it in. And the good news is that there are lots of science-based tools to help people do that. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, you start off the book talking about how even you as a psychologist who studies and knows the research behind on what causes our inner voice to go negative and how to rein it in, you had an experience where chatter, what you, what you call this sort of negative voice, just went crazy in your life. Can you tell us about that? Because I thought it was, I think it's relatable. I think a lot of people might have experienced something similar to what you've went through. Yeah. Well, you know, before I tell the story, let me preface it by saying that there's a lot of research which shows that we're much better at giving advice to others than we are following that advice ourselves. And I unfortunately experienced this firsthand about 10 years ago when I received a threatening letter in the mail. And it, it really, it, it sent my, my chatter churning. So, you know, it, I, I had never received a threat before and it was scary. And, you know, I had to file a police report and that didn't do much to help allay my concerns. And so I ended up, you know, doing, doing wacky things like pace my house until three in the morning with my baseball bat, making sure no one was coming after my newborn daughter and wife and me. And it was an, it was an experience where my, my self-talk, right? My harmful self-talk, my chatter was really taking over. I didn't have control of it. It had control of me and it, it, it really negatively affected me for a couple of days. I could not focus at work. It created friction in my relationships because I kept talking about this concern to my wife over and over and over again. And, you know, she was trying to give me help, but I wasn't listening. And there's no question that it momentarily impacted my, my health as well. I wasn't sleeping. I didn't have my appetite. And so it really exerted a negative toll. Fortunately, I, I was able to break out of that funk after a few days using uh, some science-based tools that, that we now know of and we know how they work. But when I was caught in the chatter, it was not fun. And, you know, this raises another, another question that I often get is like, how do you know when you're experiencing chatter? People often ask me that. And my response is you typically know, you typically know it when you're experiencing it because it's really a very unpleasant state, right? It doesn't feel good to be so hyper focused on this one problem that you can't think about anything else. So yeah, that was my, that was my personal experience with chatter and that I hope to never duplicate. Have you ever had something like that happen to you? Oh, no, all the time. I can, yes. That, I've, I've said this before on the pod. I'm like Larry David tend to be a neurotic and I'll like think worst case scenario and then I'll just, yeah, I'll do that. And I, I, I've done what you, you did at like the low point for you during all this, when you Googled bodyguard for college professors thinking, can, can, well, let me, let me, let me, let me preface that. <laughs> I considered Googling. Oh, you considered, so okay. I, actually, you know, it was when I, when I actually started like typing it out before I actually hit enter, I didn't because that was a moment that broke me out of this. And I thought to myself, Ethan, 
you are being insane. So, but, but carry, on. <laughs> carry on. You've you've investigated yeah, bodyguards like, for podcast hosts. No, yeah, not body bodyguards, but like you know, whenever you get like a, a some weird health symptom, right? You're like, well, I'm going to go to Doctor Google, and great, I've got this terminal disease, and you're yeah, you don't you don't want to do that. It, it always do... ends with cancer. You just you don't want exactly. To do that. It always ends. So I, mean, I thought that was interesting. So what's interesting about the voice in our head? Whenever we experience negative emotions one of the natural responses is that our internal dialogue actually starts talking more. And not only does our internal dialogue want to talk more, we actually want to talk more to other people when we f- have negative emotions. What's going on there? What causes that? Do we know? Yeah, well, so so negative emotions act like jet fuel that propel us to want to share what we're feeling with other people with with really two exceptions. That's not true when we're experiencing shame, which we tend to not want to share with other people, or trauma, which we often try to avoid. But the other kinds of negative emotions, anger, anxiety, sadness, there's a lot of research which shows that when those emotions activate, we're really motivated to talk to other people about them. So we talk more when we feel bad because A, we're looking for people to connect with empathically. We want support. We want someone to help help us we want to know that there's someone who cares enough about us that they're willing to listen. And so finding someone to talk to can be great for that, right? You're sharing your experience and you're connecting with another person. But what we also are looking for is advice or help broadening our perspective. So when we experience chatter, when our inner monologues take a wrong turn and and lead to worry and rumination, we often like hyper-focus on our experience. We, we zoom in, tunnel vision. All we can think about very narrowly is the awfulness of what we're feeling, what we're experiencing. And so what we've learned is what can be really useful when that happens is to is to zoom out, to broaden our perspective. And other people are are in a great position to help us do that, right? So, you know, if you come to me with a problem, you had a really bad argument with your partner, right? You tell me about it. So I I, I hear a little bit about it. And I, oh, that sounds terrible. Like, so we're empathically connecting. But then I can do things like, you know what? But, you know, you probably had arguments before and, and you got over it, right? So not the end of the world. So I'm broadening your perspective there. Or I could say things like, yeah, you know what? I've gotten into arguments like that with my wife over similar things. And here's how I deal with that situation. Again, like I'm shifting the focus away from you being so zoomed in on what happened to you that you can't think of anything else. And I'm, I'm trying to help you look at the bigger picture. And so other people can do both of those things for us. They can give us support and also advice. There's an important point I want to emphasize, though, which is this. In popular culture, we often hear that when you're feeling bad and experiencing chatter, what you should do is vent about your emotions to others. Just find someone to talk to and unload how you feel. The research does not support that being an effective tool for helping us work through our emotions. And the reason for that is when we vent our feelings, that does make us feel closer and more connected to the people we're talking to. Like, so no, like that's a good thing, but it doesn't do anything to help us help shift our perspective or change the way we think about things. So, so what you end up having happen is you get, you get stuck in what we call a co-rumination session where you and I feel really close to each other because we are, we're harping on how bad that thing was. Can you believe what she said? Oh my God, that stinks. I'm never going to talk to her again. But we're, we're essentially like keeping the fire ablaze. We're not doing anything 
to work through the situation. So, so venting alone is, is not an effective tool for managing chatter. And other, other interesting too about venting to someone else, like it might make you feel close in the short term, but if you, the problem with negative chatter is that the more you do it, it sort of perpetuates itself. And if you keep going to someone with like, you're just, your negative, just carping, like that actually turns people off and they're going to start pushing you away because they don't want to be around you anymore. Exactly. So, so, you know, that's one of the negative relational effects that chatter can have. It, it creates friction on our relationships because we just keep talking about it over and over and over and over again. And, and guess what? It's not fun to be on the other side of that conversation when all you're doing is, is rehashing the same thing at ad nauseum. And so, so, you know, chatter can affect us negatively in a variety of ways. It can undermine our social relationships by creating friction in them in the way that I just described. It could get under the skin to influence our health by by keeping our negative feelings alive over time. Like that exerts a real wear and tear on the body that can be harmful. And it makes it impossible to focus on the task at hand. And, and for anyone who questions how that might work, you know, I, I would ask you to think about trying to read a book when you are ruminating or worrying about something, right? The experience most people have when, when that happens is they read five pages, but they don't remember a thing that they've actually read because their mind was focused on something else. And so it can be a really big problem. Well, let's talk about some of the tools we can use to rein in on this negative chatter. And a big part of it is it's what you call, you have to distance yourself from the negative voice. What do you mean by that? Well, so if chatter zooms us in really narrowly on the experiences that are, that are driving these negative, you know, this negative inner voice, then one natural antidote to that is to zoom out to, you know, quote unquote, take a step back and try to think about your experience more objectively from a broader perspective. And it turns out there are lots of ways to do that. that and I'll, I'll tell you about just two to make it concrete. So. One thing that I do in particular with respect to COVID, which is a chatter-provoking event, I think for many of us, is I'll do something called mental time travel. So I'll, I'll think about how I'm going to feel 12 months from now when I'm vaccinated. When I do that, what that little mental exercise does, that distancing exercise does, is it makes it clear that what I'm experiencing right now, as awful as it is, it's temporary. It will eventually pass. And that gives me hope. And we know that hope can be a really powerful tool for soothing chatter. I'll also go back in time. I'll think about the pandemic of 1918 and the fact that as awful as that pandemic was, and it was quite possibly worse than what we're experiencing right now, we made it. You know, you and I are, are, are sitting here talking right now as a testament to that. And so, so those are ways of, of helping me step back and see the bigger picture in ways that put my problems in perspective and that reduce the intensity of the chatter and improve the way I feel. Another distancing tool that people can use is to try to coach themselves through a problem like they were talking to someone else. As I said before, we're much better at advising other people on their problems than we are taking our own advice. And what we've learned is that language can provide us with a tool for forgetting distance and thinking about ourselves like we were someone else. And it's as simple as using your name or, or the second person pronoun you. So, you know, when I'm really stressed about something, I'm like, all right, Ethan, here's what you're going to do. And then I'll instruct myself along. That small linguistic shift is, it's like a psychological jujitsu technique. It's shifting my perspective 
right? It's, it's no longer, I'm no longer in the first person. It's not like, okay, here's what I would say to someone else. And that can be helpful too. All right. So yeah, you talk to yourself in the second person, like Brett. Second person. Yeah. Second. Or what is How would you, am I, even, am I, is that right? I'm always. Well, you know, you, eh, if you're going to get the academic in me, you know, it, it's yeah. actually the, using your name as the third person. third person. So we actually call it distant self-talk. Distant the idea is we're breaking you out of thinking in I, me, my, okay. and you're using words that you typically use when you think about other people, names or, or, or you. And do you need to do this out loud or can you just do it inside your head, like internally? No, 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 no. You know, don't do it out loud if other people are around. That's a, <laughs> a little <laughs> a disclaimer here. So, you know, in our, in our experiments, in our studies, we always do it silently, ask people to do it silently in their head. If you're alone at home, you know, you could do it out loud if that works for you. I, I don't see why that would be problematic. If you do it out loud in front of other people, though, that will violate social norms in ways that I think you probably don't want to do because we're not used to people talking to themselves out loud. And so even though it might help you, there might be some social ramifications that you probably want to avoid. And like, how quickly does this work? Like, as soon as you start having that eternal dialogue with yourself, referring to yourself, that distant self-talk, how quickly does it silence or mute that chatter? Well, what's interesting is that a lot of a lot of distancing tools take are, are effortful. Like you've got to you got to work at it for a while. And there has been research on this distance self talk, which shows that you start to see reductions in how negative people are feeling within milliseconds. And so, Jason Moser, a neuroscientist at Michigan State University, did a study where he had people look at at pictures that were designed to really elicit a very strong negative reaction as he monitored their brain activity while people were using distant self-talk. And and within a few hundred milliseconds, he saw a reduction in how negative they were feeling according to their brain activity. All right. So it's fast. So yeah, like there's other distancing skills, like cognitive behavioral therapy is, that's what, it's basically just distancing yourself. It's teaching you techniques, but that can take a lot of effort, you know, thinking about, is this really the worst case scenario and blah, blah. But it sounds like uh, this, this distant self-talk, it can happen right away. And like, how long does the effect last? Does it, is it, if you do it more often, does like, does the voice sort of just tend to quiet down permanently? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. We actually don't have an answer to that question just yet. I don't know of research that has looked at how how durable and enduring those effects are. But you know, I do want to emphasize that there are no magic pills. You know, I think the the formula for really being good at managing chatter involves using a number of different tools interchangeably. And I think one of the challenges that both listeners and scientists faces trying to figure out what are the unique combinations of tools that work best for different people in different situations. There, there are no single magic pills that I'm aware of. So when I experience chatter about something, I'll typically use a few different tools. I'll use distant self-talk. I'll use mental time travel. I'll find someone to talk to who's skilled at not just showing me that they care, but also can help broaden my perspective. And then I'll do other things like go for a walk in a green space. We know that exposure to green spaces can be really rejuvenating in ways that help us with our chatter. So I'll do that. So I'll like take the equivalent of a chatter cocktail to help me manage that state. And I think that's that's really the the key. So not specific strategies, but combinations of them. 
Yeah, that going out in nature was interesting and in how it kind of quieted the mind. And the reason why it does that is because you're basically diminishing the self, right? You're, dimin- you're, you're, you're feeling smaller, but in the process, it makes you feel better when that happens. Well, there's, so there, are, there are a couple of different ways that nature helps, but, but that what you just described is definitely one of them. And that has to do with nature's ability to promote feelings of awe. So the emotion of awe, that's something we feel when we're in the presence of something vast that we have trouble explaining, like, like looking at a tree in the local park that's been here for hundreds of years through all the blizzards and, and all the other terrible weather, like this tree has been here. How is that possible? Or when you look up at the sky and think about the billions of stars out there, like I can't even compute how many planets that actually is. And so what, what science shows is that when we have that emotional experience, that when we're in the presence of something vast like that, we ourselves and our concerns, we feel smaller by comparison. And that's a good thing, right? Like we're no longer the center of the world and our concerns are no longer the center of the world. And that can be alleviating in, in terms of the chatter we're experiencing. And I just mentioned that time travel thing. Another thing you mentioned, another tool is genealogy can be a useful thing to soothe the chatter. You just think back, well, my great, great, whatever, you know, came across on a boat and had lice and had to be quarantined for a long time. And now they, they went up and started a business and here I am today. If they could, if he could do it, I could do it too. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I had, I had, you know, grandparents who lived in the forest for a year during world war two and they made it. And, you know, boy, does that put the, the last rejection I got from a journal editor in perspective when I compare it to that. So that's, that's another broadening, that's a perspective broadening tool that we possess. And, you know, th- these are simple mental shifts that, that can make a difference, right? They, that, that can make a difference in how we feel, but they're, they're mental shifts that I don't think are always apparent. To people because when we're so consumed with chatter, it's all consuming. It's hard for us to remember that there are other ways of thinking about this that might make us feel better. And so one of my hopes with the book was trying to really lay out what all these different tools are, like show the science behind them to explain how they work so that, that people could add these to their repertoire so that the next time they experience chatter, they can activate them. Yeah, it's good to have them in, in, in advance because as, you, as everyone has ex- might have experienced, once you start experiencing that chatter and you start going down that downward spiral, it's hard to get out. So you have to, like, you have to kind of stop it pretty quickly or else it gets harder. And you can, I've seen, you can see when people have gone down that spiral and you say, you, offer, start, you start offering suggestions. It's like, no, that's not going to work. No way. Like, you know, if you, we talked about this before we got on. Like you give this advice to your kids, like, hey, just talk to yourself, do some distance self-talk whenever you see them really frustrated. And they're like, that's so dumb. It's not going to work. This is the worst problem ever. And then they do it and they, they feel better, but it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Look, I think this is with, without exaggeration, this is a multi-trillion dollar problem. I mean, if you look, if you look alone at the impairments we have, like in the workforce due to mental health issues that are chatter related. It's a, it's a huge problem that doesn't even take into account the health concerns. This is something that I think our species has struggled with probably since we started talking to ourselves, quite frankly. I mean, you know, these are biblical problems, Adam and Eve and the snake, like (laughs) people have been worried about stuff for a very long time. And so I, I think just understanding that 
is is important for just normalizing this experience so that if people are listening and you experience chatter at times like great you're a human being but but again you know the good news is that we evolved not only to have these destructive conversations with ourselves or harmful conversations but we also evolved to possess tools to manage them and and i think that's you know that's the uplifting side of this story is that there are things we can do to help so we've talked about managing or sort of reining in that negative internal chatter. Are there instances where chatter, well, you're not chatter, internal dialogue is positive? Like we should encourage it, like encourage the voice in our head to talk more? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would hate to, I would not wish on my worst enemy a life without an inner voice because our inner voice helps us do wonderful things like problem solve and innovate and create. And so you want to have that tool at your disposal. The the problem is that when that inner voice is devoted to chatter, you can't use it to do all of the constructive things that we can do with it. And so so that's why, you know, I, I subtitled the book Harnessing the Voice in Your Head. It's not about shutting it down. It's not about silencing your inner voice. It's about it's about figuring out how to wield it. You know, by way of analogy, you can think of like a hammer. A hammer is an amazingly useful tool. I think no one would disagree with that, right? Like you could build houses and other things with it. But if you don't know how to use the hammer or if you use it improperly, as I often do as someone without a handy bone in my body, it could be a destructive force. And so it's about how to figure out how to use the tool. And that's what the science that I talk about in the book speaks to. Yeah, that one bit of advice is like if you're going through like a like a tough complex problem you're trying to work through, like talking to yourself in your head. It's like I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. I've done that, and I found that it helps, and it's really useful. It's a quick little tool. Well, well, you know, and we actually like the internal dialogue. We didn't have a chance to talk about it, but like it's heavily involved in our ability to control ourselves. In fact, according to many psychologists, self-talk is how we first learn to control ourselves. So our parents, they give us instructions. They explain how to do things. Like, this is how you brush your teeth. You know, no, you don't say that to someone else. It's rude. And then what little kids do is they then go off in a corner and they repeat those instructions to themselves. So, you know, you said you've got a a 10-year-old son, right. when he was little, I'm guessing there were probably instances in which you you saw him just talking out loud to himself. Is it fair to say that? Yes. I still see him talking you to still himself. See him. You yeah. still see him do it. Yeah. So, so like this is common. Like many kids will have like full-blown conversations with themselves out loud. That's how they are learning self-control. They're repeating what their parents are saying to them. And at first they do it out loud. But over time, they start giving themselves instructions silently using their inner voice. And, and we, you know, we hold on to that throughout our lives. So we rely on that inner voice to control ourselves. So we wouldn't want to give it up. Wouldn't want to give it up. Well, Ethan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? They can go to my website, www.ethancross.com. It's K-R-O-S-S. And you'll be able to find information about me, my lab, and the book there. So ethancross.com. Fantastic. Well, Ethan Cross, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Super fun. Thanks so much for having me.
My guest today was Ethan Cross. He's the author of the book, Chatter. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, ethancross.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash chatter, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you would think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you not only to listen to the Win Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.